tends to come up around the worthiness wound is this fear of, um, can I be myself while also being in relationships? Or am I finding myself losing myself in order to be in relationship? Or am I avoiding relationship in order to be myself? Right? So again, if the worthiness wound is a relational wound, we're really going to see it most uh, easily in relationships. Welcome to On Her Terms, a podcast that helps women nurture their unique personal power and channel it into creating a life that is truly their own. I'm your host, Krati Mehra. In today's episode, I am talking to Thais Kai and we are discussing the subject of self-acceptance and self-worth. So as I started doing focused one-on-one client sessions, I realized that contrary to my expectations, the women who booked the sessions with me, they didn't really have a problem believing in their capabilities. They had a lot of fear and self-doubt, but they did believe that with intensive self-work, they can move past everything that's holding them back and they can reach their destination whatever that may be for them, which is great, right? They were motivated, they were driven, and they were excited. All good things. But the problem that I noticed was, and this was true about some of them, not all of them, of course, but I noticed that they were so driven that there was almost an element of desperation to their eagerness. They wanted to achieve their goals, not just because they wanted change or they wanted to do more with their resources, but because they felt that the women they are and the life they're living is just not good enough. They were not focused on moving towards something, but away from the life they were living and the women they believed themselves to be, which made me realize just how important self-acceptance is and how lacking it is in a lot of us. And if what I'm saying isn't quite resonating with you, I want you to think about the times in your life when you've been determined to lose weight. And what that felt like, what it felt like when you set out to lose weight because you wanted to be healthy and toned or fit into that gloriously sexy dress versus how you felt trying to lose weight in the wake of a rejection by someone you wanted, someone attractive, who by rejecting you made you feel like you just weren't pretty enough. Losing weight because you want to be fit means that you want to improve. That what you've already got, and you work from a place of well-being and self-care. But when you try to lose weight, as you are feeling the humiliation and pain of rejection, you will work from a place of self-loathing. All the effort will be driven by the need to not be who you are, not look the way you do. And sadly, while that may really add power to your efforts, I mean, fury like that can be pretty powerful, but When you work from a place of self-loathing, you will never quite get to the finish line. That is my belief and that is my experience. You will never reach a place where it would feel like, yes, I have arrived. I have reached my goal. It will be like chasing a moving goalpost because if you don't like who you are, then no matter how much you change your external circumstances, you'll never be satisfied with the life you have or the woman you've become. There will always be something missing, something more to be achieved, something more to be created, something more to be done. And all of this really made me curious about the concepts of not just self-acceptance, but also self-worth and how the two are related to each other, or if they are isolated concepts to work on. And considering the importance of the subject, I also want to discuss it with someone perhaps with more expertise in the area. 
And so I invited Tahis Guy to the show. Tahis is a psychotherapist and writer on a heart-led mission to support the seekers, the edge dwellers, and those who constantly struggle with the idea of being broken, reclaim their sense of worth by learning how to explore, trust, and express themselves. Through her programs, podcasts, and work with individuals and couples, Tahis is guided by the belief that when we know who we are, we become more free. She holds a master's in clinical psychology and helms a therapy practice in Los Angeles. So let's dive into today's conversation and learn what Thais has to say about the concepts of self-acceptance and what we can do to feel more comfortable in our skin, develop deeper self-worth, and repair the worthiness wound. Let's get to it. Once again, thank you for making time for this. I'm so glad you're going to be a part of the show. So thank you so much for being here and for doing this for my listeners. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. I would love to know because, you know, we have subject expertise, we have expertise in a particular area, but why we choose to focus on something, I think there's always a story behind that. So may I ask why you chose to focus on this in this particular area? Yeah, I think many people's decisions to focus on something has to do with their own personal experience. And that certainly is true for me. Worthiness is something that I've really struggled with throughout my 20s. And I wanted to understand what the struggle was and why it felt so deep for me. I looked for healing in so many different places. I was a yoga teacher, breath work, meditation. I studied the Buddhist tradition. I studied Hinduism. I studied Christianity. I really went the spirituality route for the for the majority of my 20s and then slowly started going into the psychology route, all in efforts to understand why is it that my sense of worth couldn't be fixed through something like mantras or affirmations. Why saying I am enough? Uh, and repeating that to myself over and over again wasn't doing it. Um, eradicating limiting beliefs and and mindset hacks and all of the ways that the coaching industry and the self help industry tells you that you know all you have to do are these simple steps and you'll feel worthy. And then if you feel worthy, oh my gosh, then the world is at your fingertips and everything is possible for you. You're getting in your own way and. It just wasn't working for me, and I wanted to know why. And so I became a coach, and I found that other women were struggling with something similar. And so then the journey began, became not just about understanding my own self and my own unworthiness, or what I call the worthiness wound, but also wanting to understand it in the greater context uh, for women at large. And I decided I wanted to really focus on women because I think we have a particular proclivity towards having the worthiness room really impact uh, so many areas of our lives, career, family, uh, settling, right? Being able to kind of settle into ourselves or even know who we are, have boundaries, needs. There's all sort of ways that the worthiness wound can impact our ability to be in the world. So that was at the beginning of my 20s. And now, uh, over a decade later, I'm still very interested in this topic and, and continuing to find the ways in which we can tend to the worthiness wound. It doesn't have to be something that it plagues us forever. Uh, it can be something that we can address, we can tend to, we can understand, we can heal. And as we understand and heal, can feel more spacious and more free. That is beautiful. I love the passion that you bring to this work that you're doing. And I'm with you 100%. There is not 
a sentence of your answer that I don't agree with. Like I remember creating these posts about affirmations. I created like a full comprehensive post on it. But where I'm at now with the work that I've been doing, I realized this does not work. In fact, I would go so far as to say that asking someone to repeat this, these affirmations might actually make things worse for them when they keep hitting that resistance inside when what they're saying doesn't even, at some point, it feels like they're speaking an alien language. That's how unfamiliar the whole thing seems. That's how hard it is for them to believe. So that, to me, that is huge. Do you care to like talk about that a little bit? Tell me why yeah. you like why you think self affirmations are so they're not exactly the tool you think they are. Yes, I think it's important when we're thinking about something like the worthiness wound that we're kind of contextualizing it and understanding it a little bit more. You know, the worthiness wound is an emotional wound, like an abandonment wound, like mother wounds. I mean, I I use the word wound because I like that it brings to mind a physical wound. And I think we can understand that maybe with physical wounds, the bigger the wound, the more support we may need, the more technical skill and tools we may need. And it's like you, your leg got cut off and you're putting a Band-Aid on it. You know, that Band-Aid is an affirmation. It's just not... It, it may work for a scratch. Uh, it may work for smaller bites. A Band-Aid is a great tool, right? We, we would never say, like, let's remove Band-Aids altogether from the pharmacy. Uh, we just need to apply the right tool to the right wound. So it's not that I don't think affirmations ever has a place. I do. It can be so useful when you're right about to go into a meeting and you're feeling very nervous to, like, look in the mirror and make yourself as big as possible and say, yes, you know, whatever the affirmation may be that could be useful for you. Sure, it has its place. However, something like the worthiness wound, where it is much more prevalent, it's so much deeper, uh, and it's, for many of us, really embedded in our identity. It's embedded in who we are. It's embedded in our personality and our emotional management system, right? It's it's um, a part of the landscape of our uh, way of seeing ourselves in the world. A Band-Aid is just not going to cut it. And so if I I like to, the way I've understood uh, with research and experience and talking and uh, doing this work with so many women, I found that the worthiness wound is a relational wound. It is born out of relationships, uh, particularly our predominant caregiver relationship. Uh, And so if a wound is a relational wound, right, it stems out of another person. We're not born feeling unworthy. At least I don't believe that we are. I don't believe that we're born thinking that we're less than. We don't even know these concepts, right? But as we are related to by other people around us, we start to internalize beliefs like I am not enough and I am too much. There are parts of me that's unacceptable. I have to change who I am in order to get what I need, which is attunement and love and attachment and uh, caregiving support. And so if we're looking at it as a relational wound, then we can only truly heal it or tend to it, navigate it. I'm weary of saying the word heal because I don't want to give the impression that it's like a 10-step process and then you're healed. I think something like the worthiness wound is something that we're probably going to grapple with depending on the extent that we experience it for a long time. But in the process of healing, the really important component of it is relationships, right? What is broken in relationships can only be healed in relationships. So something like affirmations, well, that's a 
it's a closed circuit. You're trying to pull a feeling that only comes out of relationships and you're trying to put a feeling internally that you're not actually getting from another, you're trying to get from yourself. And if we don't have it within ourselves to begin with, then what is the affirmation going to do, right? It doesn't really feed us and nourish us in the ways in which we're hoping it will. So again, there isn't time and place for affirmations for all of it. Um, but we have to be really mindful of what we're trying to do with a Band-Aid when we're tending to these bigger wounds. Awesome. There is so much here that I want to go into. And I think this is where like, my stand is a little different. I believe in building word independent of anyone else, which is why I love this. If you think that it is a relational wound, I want to go deeper into that. But let's let's take it one step at a time. Like there is a, a narrative around self-acceptance here, right? Like you just said that we are not born believing that we are less than anyone in the world. And yet somehow there is this the story gets created where we believe that we're not good enough as we are and not deserving of X, Y goals while we are this person. And we have to get to or we have to become this other person for us to be able to ask for these things that we want so badly. And to me, I get it. I get how damaging that can be because while whatever time you get into that place, you're going to be in so much pain. Let's take that apart. Let's let's talk about self-acceptance. How do you see it? What you've observed with the people that you worked with? How does it differ from self-worth? And where does worthiness wound come into it? Well, yeah. You know, I never really thought about self-acceptance and self-worth and compare them together because so it's a really interesting question and I think it's so worthy of exploration you know when I think of self-acceptance I tend to think about the ways in which we hold a tremendous amount of shame for the ways in which we are and that shame prevents us from from digging a little bit deeper and from bringing in the feelings that we have attempted to eradicate through the process of shame, again, because of it could be cultural values, it could be uh, family values, you know, our normative culture tells us what are allowed and not allowed. So if we have more marginalized identities, now we're not only grappling with familial norms and belief systems, but also, you know, culture at large. So there's many, many reasons why we may internalize feelings of inadequacies and, and you know, the worthiness wound. I think when I'm, when I speak about the worthiness wound, it's a little bit more than just self-acceptance. Self-acceptance is a part of the process of tending to the worthiness wound. But I'm also speaking to, in the worthiness wound, building something that we just don't have within ourselves. And so if I would have to like structure it in terms of steps, I can imagine that an initial step is that we have to accept that we have a worthiness wound. We have to grapple with the fact that we have it. And that can be painful in and of itself. And that can be shameful in and of itself that we really try to deny that we don't have this experience. And so once we start to accept, oh, this is this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm grappling with. Now we have to tend to it. And the tending to it is building something that it doesn't exist within us right now. That's where it can be really challenging to use tools such as affirmations uh, because you're trying to cultivate something that you don't have, right? And it, it's not, it can't be created by nothing. It has to be created by something. For example, 
if you grew up in an environment, um, we're going to go very extreme here. If you grew up in an environment where you only were exposed to one person, okay, and that one person repeated to you every single day that you're worthless, that you are nothing. Okay. So again, very extreme example. You're on an island with one other person and that person is the only one that you can relate to, that you have a relationship with, and they're telling you you're worthless. Now, of course, as you grow up, you're probably going to feel like you are worthless. You are nothing. You are not deserving of anything. Okay. Again, extreme. Now, how do you heal that? How do you tend to that? Now there is, again, there's a place for everything. But if you were to tell this person, all you have to do is look in the mirror and believe that you're worthy, well, where are they pulling that belief from, right? There's nothing to pull from because they've never experienced it. They don't know what that even means. It's not, it doesn't even make sense to them. It's, so for that extreme person, we're going to need another relationship, another human who's going to be in it with them and show them, oh, actually, you are worthy. Through the relationship, they will learn a different model of relating to themselves. So again, most of us don't live in this extreme example, right? So for most of us, there will be a hodgepodge of things that may support us in healing our worthiness, many of which may be these more closed systems tools like affirmation or mindset work or you know limiting belief work, etc. Um, but if you're noticing, if you're listening, and you're coming to terms with the fact that these things aren't helping you, it's not because you're broken. It's because you may need an additional source, a relational map that can come from being in psychotherapy or in a um, kind of supportive coaching environment where the person is helping instill within you a sense of worth through the relationship and developing a different working model of relating that includes worth. Okay, I'm beginning to understand this. So we are not saying that this person can only learn to view themselves through the lens of that relationship. We're just saying that for them to explore that sense of worth, for them to be able to build on that belief of their inherent worth, they would need to relate to themselves through someone else if they don't already have that foundation, right? Yes. I mean, think about it this way. Who we are, our sense of self, this is psychology kind of uh, 101, I guess we can say it that way. Who we are is born out of our relationship to others. The sense of self that we now carry in the world was born out of how people related to us and modeled to us as children. That's why it's so interesting when we look at how we're struggling in our lives today, we can look at our past and we can see how much of our past is literally playing out in our lives right now. We don't have to look into the past, to be honest. I can tell you what's happened, what happened in your past by looking at your life right now. So as children, what happens is we develop this internal working model of relationships. When I ask for my needs to be met, they get rejected. When I am too loud, too, et cetera, I get rejected. I get turned away. My mother stops smiling at me. When I cry too much, my dad tells me to shut up, stop crying. So all of these small ways that were related to every day, that we're told every day how to be morphs our personality and morphs our sense of self. And now we take that working model, that map, I like to think of it like a blueprint, 
of how the world works that we developed out of these relationships. And now we're seeing the world through this map. It's the only thing we know. So it's like telling a fish they're in water. I didn't know I was in water. This is the only thing I know. So that's why it can be more insidious and more difficult. The worthiness wound is a little bit more stubborn of an internal experience than maybe other wounds, because we don't even know how the we are seeing the world and understanding ourselves in the world through the lens of inadequacy. We see it maybe more blatantly in the ways in which we're holding ourselves back and the ways in which we're not going after what we want in terms of self-sabotage, comparitis, people-pleasing tends to be deeply connected with the worthiness wound. Avoidance strategies tend to be deeply connected with the worthiness wound. So we can see how it plays out and then we get support, right? We go to a coach, we go to a therapist and we're like, okay, this isn't working anymore. And where, you know, a lot of people may not... Um, attribute it to the relationship. They may think that what's happening is that they're learning mindset hacks. What's typically happening that's healing is that there's another person who's interested, who's curious, who's holding an empathic container that allows us to start to internalize, oh, I, I don't have to relate to the world this way because this relationship is showing me that there's another way in which I can see myself and see the world. Okay, I have two questions there. And this was amazing. This this helps a lot. I think this would really add to, it has certainly added to my understanding. You know, there are parents, like the examples that you gave, parents shutting down their kids when they are being emotionally expressive or giving them just generally a response that the parents don't want or it's just, you know, they don't have the patience for. But I think this can even happen in families that adore their kids, loving families, wherein we just sort of, have these certain mindset and we pass them on to our kids, maybe in an attempt to keep them safe, right? That could also like, like with girls, a lot of parents who have daughters raise their daughters to be these so cautious when you go out. You have to be, you have to constantly watch where you're going. You have to be sure nobody's following you. You have to, they're trying to protect us, but it sort of puts this idea in our head that we are always unsafe. And suddenly this is like the first thing you think about when you step out of your house, which is not the healthiest thing to do. Well, and it's hard when we are, you know, there is a tendency towards violence against women, right? I mean, this is yeah, where it can get really course. difficult when we're grappling with the actual realities of life and also the ways in which we've been taught to be unsafe, right? And then we're checking the door an amount that's actually prohibiting us from ever feeling safe. No matter how many times we check the door, no matter how many times we check our surroundings, we're still feeling unsafe. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes to the point where it's like really impacting our lives it's no longer just like oh be cautious when you're walking at home at night it's now like i'm never ever safe and that can be absolutely crippling to the nervous system and to the ways in which we ever feel like we can take the bra off you know so to speak or or certainly just get more comfortable in ourselves and our bodies if we think about the worthiness wound you know as a relational wound and think about it in terms of how we were related to i think it's very easy for us to go to oh why well, I, I did grow up in a pretty loving home i mean my parents did the best that they could so this probably isn't for me or this probably doesn't apply to me but we're not talking about malicious intent we're not talking about parents hating their children, although that does happen. You know, in the island example, right, the, the one person probably hated the other to say you're worthless over and over and over again. Most of us, not all, 
grew up in an environment where we wouldn't consider it abusive. We wouldn't consider it neglectful. We would say, well, I was clothed and I was housed. And looking back, I had some pretty good memories and my parents did the best that they could. But when I'm talking about you know, the the subtle ways in which we may learn that we are too much or we are not enough, I think you're really spot on that it doesn't mean it came out of a malicious intent. And in fact, you know, our parents are doing the best that they could, but just because they did the best that they could doesn't mean that they did the best for what we needed. And there's a subtlety there and it can be hard to grapple with. You know, we really need to hold our parents and or our predominant caregivers in a good light. And so it may be hard for us. And that's okay. And that's where we can get support. And that's when we can make sense of it with another. We don't have to do it alone. But yeah, we're not talking about for most of us. Again, there are exceptions. Of course, there are people who grew up in abusive homes. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we were abused if we have the worthiness wound. It's more subtle than that. And that's why it can be so hard to navigate. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point because that's the point I was trying to establish here. Because a lot of the time when this subject comes up, people think we're apportioning blames. We're not. We're not assigning blame to anyone. It's just you need this awareness so that there is a solid foundation on which you're trying to build this new person on. If if you know you are in the in going through like these self-help seminars, these reading these books, well, you've got to have a foundation, and that's just where this whole narrative comes in. But I now want to backtrack a little bit because, yeah, we have established that it could happen in any circumstance, not assigning blame. Again, it's just something to be aware of. So a lot of people don't see this clearly in themselves. Like if you like a lot of people will say that they don't have a worthiness wound, but then they are playing over and over again a story that, in fact, points to there being some, you know, something to explore there. So can we talk about how, like you pointed out, that is the first thing that has to happen, that you have to identify that you in fact have a worthiness wound. How can people go about that? Especially women, because it's such a, I think it can be very challenging for them. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that we can look at the ways in which we relate to people One of the big themes that I'm noticing in my work that tends to come up around the worthiness wound is this fear of, um, can I be myself while also being in relationships? Or am I finding myself losing myself in order to be in relationship? Or am I avoiding relationship in order to be myself? Right. So again, if the worthiness wound is a relational wound, we're really going to see it most Uh, easily in relationships. So of course, um, there are many other areas. Um, If you notice yourself not being able to advocate for yourself, if you notice yourself having very rigid or very loose boundaries, uh, if you notice yourself taking on perfectionistic tendencies, controlling tendencies, if you notice yourself, you know, addiction, eating disorders, it's not to say that all of these things, the core is the worthiness wound. I'm not doing a a cause or effect here, but that they're often are connected. Um, Sometimes it may be the worthiness wound and it may be a, a whole myriad of other things, but you can most easily see it in relationships and the ways in which we have a really hard time staying and co regulating, being in relationship with other people without feeling like we have to wear a mask, we have to hide, we have to avoid, we have to deny our truths in some way. That's often the ways in which I see it playing out more than not. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying the episode. I'm taking a quick break here to remind you to subscribe to On Her Terms. Subscribing means that you get the latest episode without fail delivered to you every week. 
and it helps me reach a wider audience. If you haven't already, please pick up your phone and subscribe now. Let me know that you appreciate the content I'm sharing. Thanks in advance. I want to go one step further now and ask you like, yes, you you have explained beautifully how this you can explore this in relation to other people, like another person can almost like walk you through this narrative that's playing within you. But may I ask, we know that self-differentiation can be very challenging for women. There are so many women in this world who go through their lives seeing themselves as mother, daughter, sister, wife. They, they sort of lose their identity as an individual in that noise. So do you think it is ever possible that while you see yourself as a as an amazing mother, as a great daughter, you can somewhere lose your individuality and that could contribute negatively to your sense of self-worth? Absolutely. The more that we identify with something and that changes or gets lost or, you know, ends, then we're at a very difficult point of having to come to terms with the fact that maybe we've been very strongly identifying with something that is not that is separate from us. I mean, you know, I think that identifying in and of itself as a mother or sister, a wife can be really wonderful and can be very healing and can be very reparative. And it can also, depending on the extent in which it is guiding our decisions, it can be very harmful. It can hurt us too. Right. So if we think about the, the identity of mother, that can be a really, you know, really important role that we crave, that we want. We may have come at a very early age and have been wanting to be mother. And once we have children, it can feel like we're so, oh my gosh, like we've fulfilled our destiny. But the danger of to identifying as mother is what happens. Are we allowing our children to be separate from us? Or are we expecting them to fulfill a certain function and owe us something in order for us to feel like we are, you know, fulfilled as role of mother? So mother in and of itself, of course, is not a bad identity. I mean, it's it can be wonderful. But are we uh, also able to contain the ways in which our identity requires an other you know, and then that starts to become, well, it can become a little dangerous if we're putting all of our self-worth on how our children perform in life or how much our children love us. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but um, I do think that there's historical context that tells us that men are more uh, have more permission to identify themselves uh, as individuals in the world and women historically right have been extension of others and I think that's because of the way in which we're raised I think you know and, and of course we're talking about uh, right now men and women but of course uh, there are other ways in which our gender identity and sexual identity can play into this as well but anyway I think we can't go, we have to also look at our patriarchal influence. We have to look at the ways in which um, we haven't been allowed to develop our own curiosities, career, hobbies for hundreds of years. And so I think we're also now seeing, seeing the, the swing pendulate to the other side where we're now terrified of 
relationshiping. And I think we see this in the language of codependency, you know, that there's this very fear uh, being instilled in us that we can't derive any type of worth from relationships, or it means that we're codependent. It means that we um, are depending too much on other people for our own joy and pleasure. Um, and I and there is something problematic to that narrative too, because the truth of the matter is we are dependent on each other. We are interdependent. It's how society can function. It is how families can function. We depend on each other. And it's actually a very healthy level of dependence that's required for healthy relating. But we can get really lost in this fear of like, oh my gosh, I can't be and I can't depend on you. I can't um, ask you for things. Like I have to be completely self-sufficient uh, because I don't want to be codependent. I don't want to, you know, be t- be affected by another person. And I don't think that that's the answer either. Right, right. There is a lot to explore in that. I, I love your answer on that subject. There's so much to explore there. Uh, but I want to ask you, like we were talking about the worthiness wound, so taking a step towards that topic and exploring how that could potentially affect, because I want to really uh, bring home to my listener the urgency of the situation. I want to ask you how this can impact, whether you're conscious of it, whether you're not conscious of it, how it can play into the choices that you make the careers that you choose, the sort of the everything, like whether you choose to live by yourself, whether you choose to get married, whether you choose to pursue single, whatever. How does this, the worthiness wound, how it just impacts the choices you're making? I mean, I think it, you said it perfectly. It impacts us on every level and it, it limits what we see as possible for ourselves, right? We get very rigid and stuck and thinking that there's only certain options for us, um, when in fact, there's so many more possibilities than we could ever fathom, we could ever imagine. And it's con- it's context-based. For some people, it may be a fear of relationships. For some people, it may be a deep fear of being alone, right? And so, you know, I can't get too prescriptive, but it impacts us in all sorts of ways. Uh, in our career, we may find ourselves not speaking up, not advocating for ourselves, not asking for a raise. We may find ourselves, you know, not going for a job that may be more challenging. We may find ourselves believing that we wouldn't be good at managerial roles. We may find ourselves putting only ourselves in managerial roles because we're terrified that if we are of level to somebody, then that means we have to relate to them in ways that are more intimate. And so we distance ourselves by being the leader, right? I mean, if we think about entrepreneurialism, this is where so much can get played when we're talking about marketing and putting ourselves out there, promoting our programs. There's ways in which the worthiness wound, we try to overcome compensate by promoting in ways that's actually dishonest and we feel like we have to do that uh, because we have to you know believe in ourselves and uh, live as if and so we're actually lying about our expertise and about our potent you know what our experience because we think that that's what we have to do as the way to compensate for our feelings of inadequacy. I mean, we see this very prevalent in the coaching industry with the ways in which coaches are pricing themselves, the way in which they market themselves and promote themselves as having this perfect lifestyle, you know, that is just sipping margaritas by the beach with their Louis Vuittons, right? And it's like, and people pay for that and they pay for that because they feel inadequate and they feel like if they don't pay for that ten thousand dollars in two-day program then they're going to never heal and then so the coaching and she really preys on women in that way and coaches feel like they have to promote themselves in that way in order to stand out but that's that's worthiness if we truly could settle into ourselves and into our promotion and our marketing we wouldn't need 
to lie or to make ourselves look bigger than our reality. We don't have to operate that way. So that's also an entrepreneurialism. But then we see that also in the ways in which we avoid putting ourselves out there, ways in which we don't ever feel like we're ready to put ourselves out there, ways in which we think we need another, you know, another credential, another program, another thing before we put our work out there. So, I mean, I can go on and on in every single aspect of, you know, an, a complicated life, but we, we see it everywhere and all over the place. And there is urgency. There is such an urgency because we will continue to exploit the planet. We will continue to exploit each other. We will continue to suffer, you know, and impact the people around us if we don't start really facing ourselves and facing the ways in which when we live life unconsciously, we live life reactively. And when we react to life, we're limiting the possibilities that are that are available to us and to the world. That is a powerful answer. That's yes. I'm, I'm glad you said all that. It is. I think yes. It is so happening in the coaching industry. I think one of the reasons is because it's the primary marketing platform is our platforms like Facebook and Instagram. I think that's one of the reasons why it happens so much. But I think it's everywhere. Anywhere where you use visual marketing this happens like you are promoting this lifestyle that just seems i don't know it just seems kind of boring <laughs> to me yeah frankly. It, it, it does feel boring and it also is yeah. very appealing and it, it's like it's we are now participating in the objectification of our own bodies right if you're thinking about yeah. the ways in which marketing used to be put a skankily clad bikini lady in front of a car and that would sell cars for men now we're being skankily you know <laughs> skankily that's not a word scantily oh my gosh what is even the scantily. word uh Thank you, scantily dressed, <laughs> which they're not to each their own. You can dress however way you want. Yeah. I have no opinions of that. But we feel like that's the only way. Absolutely. Right? If we feel like that's the only way that we can get our work out there is not by standing behind our expertise, our credibility, our experience, but rather selling our life, selling our body, then, then there's an opportunity for us to just investigate more deeply. Again, nothing wrong with putting yourself out there in whatever way you want. But if it's, if we're doing it out of a belief that that's the only way that we'll feel good enough, that's the only way that we'll make the impact we want to make, and we feel limited by that, then there's an opportunity for exploration because there are so many other ways. It does not have to be that way. I love that. In fact, you know, the, the clients that I'm talking to these days, I encourage them to keep their power in their own hands. Like a lot of the clients would approach a coach with this mindset that this person is going to heal me. And when you believe that, you give away so much of your power. And I'm like, I'm just like you. Probably after our session is over, I'm going to have to journal and work on myself that, oh, you know what? I didn't do that right. Let me just get that right the next time I'm in a session. We're all the same. We all have that sense of inadequacy. Some of us exploit others because of our sense of inadequacy. And that's how we, we think that is the only way we can get power. And so you have to, under, I love that you're pointing that out because everyone needs to know that even the people you see doing incredible things in the world, they have that sense of inadequacy. So there's no shame there. Some of us acknowledge it, some of us don't acknowledge it, but it's definitely, it's there. And when you approach someone, 
expecting to get help, that's great that you're seeking help. That in itself is such a powerful move that you see the need for help and you go out there and you seek out a person and you give them whatever investment you have to make and you ask them, come on, help me, educate me, teach me. That is such a powerful thing to do, but do not give away your power. Always make sure that you are the one directing your moves. That is important. Learn as much as you can from everyone, but definitely keep yourself, always be the captain of your own ship. That I think is very important. I love, I love this. I'm so glad you brought up so many important points here. And this is a question that I think I feel so strongly about. And and I know this is hard because there are so many factors that play into a child's upbringing. But yet I want to ask you, what do you think it is that parents can do, that mothers can do, especially where little girls are concerned, because I feel just so strongly about it, so that we can raise more confident kids? So, yes, the, the environment will play into it. But what is it that we as parents can do? You know, I am thinking right now of a psychoanalyst and pediatrician uh, by the name of Donald Winnicott, and he came up with this idea of the good enough mother. And he encouraged in his work for us to think about the fact that we don't need to be perfect mothers and that, they're, that actually in our striving for perfection, which is, you know, can be connected to the worthiness wound. So D.W. Winnicott, you know, really wanted us to think about this idea that we don't have to be perfect, right? And that to be perfect is actually counterintuitive because what is imperative for relationships is that there is a rupture and repair, that there is not a miss that happens on a pretty frequent basis. But the point of when we miss is that we can then repair. And so the good enough mother really was meant to instill within mothers this idea that you can be imperfect You don't have to strive for this perfect ideal of mother. uh, And then that's good enough. Your best, as long as you continue to show up for your child, for yourself, you can, you know, you continue to strive and learn and grow and try to do the best that you can. You know, good enough doesn't mean like you can treat people like crap, right? And, And call it a day. That's not what that means. You know, of course, if people are listening to this, they're interested in growing and doing the best that they can keep going. But just know that when you miss, when you make a mistake, when you get it wrong, when you get impatient, when you have a bad day, it's inevitable, it happens. And it's okay, you know, and you can repair and you can make amends and you can talk about it and you can process it in however way that feels applicable or appropriate for your child's age. But I think that really pertains a lot to what we're talking about now with the worthiness room is it can get really, if we really are, are strongly identify as mothers and we want to do the best for our kids, we can really get sucked into thinking that somebody out there will know how we can be better parents. But you know your kid best. You know your baby best. It came out of, you know, it came out of your love, right? I mean, oh, maybe not for all of us, but but still, like we, you know, mothers, I'm not a mother, so I can't speak as, as me, but I, am, I, I work with a lot of mothers and all I hear is so much care, you know, and that care is perfect and wonderful. And that can be, a, that can be enough, you know, you doing the best that you can, can be enough. We don't have to strive for perfection. Again, I love that. In fact, I think any mother who's worried about whether she's doing a good job or not, it means you're doing a good job. I'm also not a parent, but I have been on the receiving end of those conversations where, what do you think I should do? I'm like, you're you're asking a non-parent. 
you're doing a great job. Just the fact that you're so worried that you would take, like there were the women who are about double twice my age, women with some having been raising their kids for 10, 15 years. I'm like, you are so okay with asking a woman half your age without any child rearing experience. And you are willing to humble yourself and you're willing to put yourself out there. You're doing an awesome job so far as I'm concerned. So, so I think that let's, let's issue that reassurance to anyone who needs it. If you're worried, you're doing a good job. Yeah. And, and there's something really important about trusting that you, you know, have the right internal world for the child that is in front of you. Yes. You know, absolutely. So true. I love this. I have not even covered, like, I have so many questions now just listening to your answers. There's so much to explore there. But I want to also, since we are have limited time here, I want to learn about how you're helping clients, like how you're helping people, how they can work with you, your, the program that you're offering. Yeah, I'm a psychotherapist in the state of California currently taking on patients. I'm also a coach for specifically women navigating the worthiness wound. And I do have a few openings and I also have a, a program that I run and I believe doors will open again in the fall for the year long cohort of Worthy Women Rise. Uh, and Worthy Women Rise is essentially where I disseminate all of my thoughts into 13 modules uh, for how to tend to the worthiness wound. And I, I consider it like not a tripartite model, but like a dual partite model, two very important cornerstones for the program. There's both the knowledge that of how to tend to ourselves, but then there's also the group experience and the relational component that is really essential to tending to the worthiness wound. So there's Worthy Women Rise, but you can learn all about me and my offerings at my website, taisky.com. Awesome. That helps a lot. When you're tired, when you're feeling down and out, and you're just a feeling a little confused and a little lost, but you need to bring your A game to something. Where do you find inspiration? What a great question. I think it is in those moments when we are right about, you know, being asked to do something really, really big that I like to remember that all I have to do is survive it. And I know that that's <laughs> may not sound very empowering, but there are times when we just we we don't necessarily always like have to be again perfect and do it perfectly, especially if we're not feeling good. Sometimes, like, can we give ourselves permission to just get through it, right? To just survive it, to just get to the other side of it. Again, this isn't maybe the thing to remember all the time. And I imagine that you have guests that can share like more empowering statements. But I think when we're really struggling, and when we're really like having a crappy day, the idea of now suddenly going from a zero to 100 and confident and worthy, etc you know may feel like a really far fetch and maybe it's okay that we just get to the 20 you know or get to the 30 of just like i just have to survive it i will survive it whatever is in front of me i will survive it i'll get through the other side and then i can talk about it i can get support i can work through it i can you know figure it out but particularly when we're in really challenging situations like our boss is losing their their marbles in front of us and they're screaming at us you know and we're we're finding ourselves wanting to react wanting to defend in ways that may really jeopardize our job hopefully we never find ourselves in that type of situation but sometimes it happens it can be really helpful to say to ourselves i just need to get through this i just need to survive without retaliation, 
right? It just needs to survive without pushing. We want to be boundered and, and whatever. This is obviously a much more nuanced conversation, but, but we just have to survive it, get through it, and then we can decide what we want to do when we have a little bit more of a fortified nervous system. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. I think it can be helpful sometimes. It can absolutely be helpful. I love that. I, I love that answer. It is reassuring and it's helpful. And for women who are not yet ready to seek out outside help, how can they begin the process of healing from negative personal narratives, find some acceptance, start building their self-worth, at least start that process? And and not in a like a superficial way, as we talked about the affirmation bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. not in yeah. that way, in, in, way, in a way that is more than skin deep. Sure. Well, you can read the book that I'm going to write, you know, in a few years. So stay tuned for that at some point. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, a great place to start tending to our worthiness wound is wherever we're feeling called to start. Again, I'm really keeping in mind that the people that may be listening to this are chronically feeling like they need to do more. And so I want to remind all of us that you're probably already doing it. It may not look the way you think it has to look. It may not feel the way you think it has to look, but you're probably doing already enough. If wherever you're feeling called to tend to, maybe you're feeling called right now to do somatic work, go follow that, trust that. Maybe you're feeling really called to learn more about parenting. Go there. Trust that. Wherever you're feeling called to learn more about yourself, I believe that that's a great first place to start. Because, you know, for the fact that you're already listening to this episode, right? you're already listening to this stuff, you're already on your way. You're already on the journey of. And I always like to when I look back in my life as a yoga teacher and then doing somatic work, somatic healing, And then moving into, you know, becoming a psychotherapist, every person I found along the way was what was what I needed at the time. I couldn't at the beginning of my work, imagine that what I would need is more relational work, because I didn't trust relationships. So I started by body work. And that was what I needed at the time to give me the foundation to then move into doing relational work and have it be more you know, what I need now, you know, now I don't feel called to do more body work and I feel called to do more relational work, right? So we really can trust that wherever we're feeling called and wherever we're gravitating towards is going to be what needs to be right now, trusting that it will probably evolve and change and grow. And then that you're on your way. You're already doing enough. Yeah, beautiful. Lastly, to women out there who are seeking to be more powerful, feel more powerful within themselves, build a happier, healthier life. What do you want to say to them? Is there any, like your number one go-to advice for them or perhaps an instance from your life that you want to share? This is something that because you are doing all of this work, I have to believe that there must have been instances in your life when you must have felt the need for someone to teach you all of this. And probably that's what sent you down this path, seeking this knowledge. So If there is any such moment from your life that you want to share with the listeners, anything empowering that can help them walk away from this episode feeling like they can do it too, they'll get there. Yeah, I think a really important kind of concept or idea that has been more true for me now than ever before 
is that we don't have to do it alone and we don't have to figure it out alone. And that often it isn't doing it alone that we're perpetuating our sense of inadequacy or, or our worthiness wound. We live in a very individualistic culture. And I think the, the self-help industry, even just by the name of it, self-help, like you're expected to be able to help yourself. You shouldn't need people. You shouldn't depend on people. You should be able to figure it out. And if you're not being able to figure it out alone, then there's something wrong. But I think behind every powerful woman is a team of other people who are supporting her. And the more support I get, like I'm so supported right now around me. And I wonder why I ever felt that doing it alone was the way because doing it alone implies that I have to figure it all out. And there's things that we just don't know about ourselves and that we can't know by ourselves. We can journal and meditate and do all of these wonderful things. And that's still going to not tell us what we don't know about ourselves. And so surrounding ourselves intentionally with the right people, with you know, with a therapist or a coach, with um, support systems. I, I recognize that there's a tremendous amount of privilege in what I'm saying, but I, I don't necessarily mean also that you have to invest financially in order to get support, but really leaning on our network, um, allowing people to support us, you know? So instead of saying something like, what do I need? You know, this is a big question that we tend to ask ourselves in the self-development world. Like, what do I need? You know, what I need is this, and then I'll fulfill myself this. I actually like the question of how can I be supported? Or how can I ask people to support me right now? Or what type of ways can my can I access more support in my life? And what we can find is that, you know, that forces us to enter relational dynamics that can get very tricky and very complicated and hard. And then we need to, you know, work through that because we don't have to do it alone. And I think our world really depends on us learning that we can't do it alone. Capitalism tells us we have to do it alone. You know, the history of capitalism, we talk about colonization, we talk about racism, we talk about all of these isms that's happening in the US and in many ways worldwide, you know, so much of the narrative is that we have to do it alone. And I don't believe in that. And I think women were more powerful when we have each other's backs. So where are you thinking that you have to figure it out alone? Where are you thinking, you know, that if you can't figure it out alone, it means that there's something wrong with you? And can you get the right support? And that can take time and energy and that can be hard. But I deeply believe that it is the well-supported woman who will make the most impact in the world. That's it for today's episode. So did you love it or did you love it? Thank you for joining me today and sharing your time. If you're eager for more, head on over to onherterms.com for show notes, guest information, downloads, and more. And if you want to be a part of the conversation, ask questions and share your struggles with other powerful women, join my intimate community over on Facebook. The link will be in the episode description. Until next week, this has been another episode of On Her Terms podcast.